regardless of whether or not there is uh, financial malfeasance in the air. Great word. (laughs) I'm trying to put some big words. Ariel brought the patent heat on the first one and brought details on (laughs) patents. I'm trying to bring some words that up my credibility here on the show. Words like assertion and malfeasance. everyone, and welcome to Another Bite, where we rewatch some of the most innovative and <laughs> intriguing pitches from Shark Tank. I'm Jory, and I'm joined by John. How's it going, everybody? And Ariel. Hey. So, you know, I was trying to think of a theme that connects these products together today, and I was a little stumped because at first they feel really random, but then I had an aha moment. We have a solid, we have a liquid, and we have an app that is in the cloud, which is sort of like gas, so it counts. So today's theme is States of Matter Shark Tank Edition. Oh my gosh, I love this. (laughs) You know, I'm glad you love it because I was like, you know, this is probably the last time they're going to let me write this intro. Uh, So while I deal with that mentally, uh, here's a pre-prepared ad roll. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. Like trying to remember the name of that guy you met at a networking event? HubSpot's all-new service hub can help. Well, in the service solution part, at least. It brings service and success together in one powerful platform for the first time ever. With an AI-powered help desk and an AI chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Also, you can scale support and drive revenue and retention. Visit HubSpot.com slash service so you can do more with your customers today. First in the tank, we have Bubba Q's deboned baby back rib steak. And this comes to us from Al Bubba Baker, and I will be calling him Bubba moving forward, who is a former NFL player turned barbecue connoisseur. And he comes to the Sharks asking for $300,000 for 15% in his business, which is a $2 million valuation. So the problem that Bubba's trying to solve here is that, you know, ribs can be really messy to eat. So enter Bubba Q's, which is a fall off the bone tenders that use like a particular technique. We sort of get into it, but not really because it's proprietary that debones the meat while leaving the chunk (laughs) intact, which is great. And it's microwave ready in two minutes. So thinking about our founder and our pitch and our product, initial thoughts? There was something very unnatural about barbecues. (laughs) I look at my notes. I kept writing the word unnatural. (laughs) Deboned ribs, unnatural. Two minutes in the microwave to cook them, unnatural. That is weird. A patented bone removal system? That is unnatural. There are some unnatural things happening with Bubba Q's deboned ribs. That's all I'm going to start with. Do you like boneless wings or chicken nuggets or Mm. any other meat that does not have the bones in them? And is it different than having ribs that don't have the bone? I believe so. I think, listen, <laughs> like uh, chicken fingers mm-hmm. is a boneless wing. It's not like when you order a boneless chicken wing, they've just pulled the bone out of a chicken wing. True, it's a you chicken You know what nugget. I mean? It's a chicken nugget. And I love yeah. chicken nuggets. Everybody, who doesn't like a chicken nugget? This is like, they literally somehow unnaturally rip the bones from the rib meat and then get the rib meat to stay together so it's Mm -hmm. not, that's something that feels off to me. Like I'd be alarmed if I picked up a chicken wing that was like an actual chicken wing and it had no bone in it and it just like Mm -hmm. flopped down. Like that would be upsetting. And it retained the shape. So mind you, this is ribs without the actual ribs in it. 
but maintaining the shape somehow by magical disappearing bone procedures. Through unnatural means, Jory. This is what I'm saying. (laughs) I didn't have much confidence when he's like, this is a proprietary secret. I'm like, is it safe? Are you using a chemical to get the bones out and dissolve them? Like, I'm actually really intrigued by the process and understanding more there, which I wish they kind of went into. You know where my head went when I Hmm. started thinking about what his proprietary bone removal technique could be? (laughs) I went to like cartoons when a magician would rip the tablecloth out and none of the things on the table would move. Like, that's what I'm envisioning. I think he just pulls the bones really fast and they just come out. That's what I'm assuming happens. I mean, it seems like there is some kind of process where he's like, I cook it in the bone flavor. That's why these taste so good. And then he like flash freezes them. So I'm sure there's something there about ripping it out with like the heat that plays a role. I think you're onto something, John. What's really interesting about this business kind of like initially is the fact that he has patents. Mind you, this pitch was back in 2013. So what I'm about to say, there's like a small caveat there, but it is kind of the first time, and Kevin mentions this, that in Shark Tank history up until that point, that there had been a patent on a food product. And that's really the power of this pitch initially. It's got a patent on the product, so no one else can have a fully cooked rib with more than one bone removed. It's this proprietary <laughs> process with like how the bones disappear, we don't right now. And since he started this business, he's selling them. So like, despite how unnatural it appears, like people are interested. He's got $154,000 in sales. Yeah, the patents was really interesting. Like, I think this is the first time we've ever seen a food product that's had a patent on it. And I was really fascinated behind this concept. So I did a little bit of some research into patents and food. There's usually three different types of patents specifically for food. So utility, which is like the process, the manufacturing, which is probably what he has. The second is more like design patents. So based around, you can't copy my packaging or the way the food is presented. And then the last one is plant patents, which I did not know about. So if you have, like a certain plant or berries that you're using in a recipe or an ingredient you can get a patent for. But what's interesting here is you cannot get a patent unless if it's like an innovation and an invention. Mm -hmm. So you have that physical, tangible concept. Are you adding something that's fundamentally different to the category as opposed to, oh, I'm adding this with less sugar. Like it has to be a net new invention to the common person, which is very like subjective. But I was very fascinated by the patents. (laughs) But thinking about this as a business, like I understood that there were like some initial sales and definitely our founders been in the barbecue industry. I think he mentioned like 19 years. The founder mentioned that he was in 48 stores, but we didn't really get a lot. Besides like that one number, uh, $154,000 in sales, we didn't get really a sense of like the business plan here, Mm -hmm. like what they're doing for marketing, how people are finding them, what the ideal consumer is, which is, I suppose, people that don't find this product unnatural. (laughs) I kind of just walked away from this being like, this is a very interesting product. I know there's a lot of meat lovers, but I feel like I don't really know a lot about the business. Yeah, it definitely seemed like the sharks were more interested in how defensible the product is from like a legal perspective and having the patent. But I agree with you, Jory, like they didn't necessarily go into customer acquisition or what stores they see the most success in, like we typically see with other like food related pitches. The thing that I think you're pushing on, which is really interesting, is like, does this brand have momentum, Mm. right? Like if he wants to go direct to consumer or even begin to just distribute through wholesale, we have to have some idea about whether there's product market fit. Do people actually want deboned ribs? (laughs) How many ghouls are there out there buying unnatural ribs? That's the question (laughs) in everybody's mind. And is his brand for it actually gaining any momentum? Like those would be Mm -hmm. the data points that I think would be really interesting to decide whether or not you should go all in on trying to market Bubba Q's deboned ribs. 
in grocery stores around America. It seemed like he had like $154,000 in sales for a year. So it seems like maybe he doesn't quite have product market fit. It would have been stronger if he came and said, this is my barbecue store. Uh, Here is how many people come to my barbecue store. Here's the number of star rating I have. Here's how I've grown in the community Mm -hmm. and my word of mouth has grown over these years. Here's what I want to tell you about Bubba Q's is Bubba Q's is everybody in America is going to know it. And the reason they're going to know it is because we have the best barbecue and we have this boneless ribs as opposed to like, he positioned it in a way that it was going to back into where it eventually backed in, which is like, it's not about your brand and it's not even really about the product. It's about your patent. Mm-hmm. And so therefore, like, we don't want to put our money behind trying to get Bubba Q's in more stores. We want to put our money behind getting your technology used by many more rib manufacturing companies. John, I will say I would try this. Would you? This is someone who does not like bones and has the palate of like a seven-year-old when it comes to food at times. (laughs) I would definitely try this once. The microwave part kind of freaks me out. I'm not going to lie. How would you even go about marketing meat? Like, what does this even look like as a marketing play? You can lean into that homemade. That's like the angle that he was leaning into more of like Bubba's Q. This may be further on down the line, but if we're talking about weird, unnatural things and boneless ribs... We should also think about an option for like vegan ribs as well that could be heated up really quickly. So I think there's a few different angles they could take this. It really does depend on the product. There needs to be a little bit of some refinement to the name. I think Bubba Q's is like totally perfect for a restaurant. But when you're going into the store, you're not going to say, hey, honey, when you're going out, can you get me the Bubba Q's? You're going to say, get me the boneless steak. So I do think there's an opportunity there from a name perspective. Yeah, there's two ways to market this. You can either market it as barbecues is the best barbecue brand in the world, mm-hmm. in which case you would go all in on trying to build a brand around barbecues and you probably turn him into some sort of animated character and you'd go all in on personality around the brand and stuff. Or you go the functional route, which is like deboned ribs and you lean super heavily into the idea that I want to convince everybody that's thinking about buying ribs this summer to actually buy deboned ribs. If I were him, I probably would go the functional route. Hmm. I think it's probably pretty darn expensive to actually get a new like known brand name and a supermarket out there. You'd need a lot of money, probably a lot more investment. And that's, by the way, why these, you know, really large conglomerate companies tend to be the companies that roll up these brands because they can invest over long-term horizons to actually build that brand and see the return on it. I um, mean, it's probably really hard for an independent to actually go out and just build on the brand name alone. If you think about like, you know, Dollar Shave Club, like mm-hmm. they sold on function. And that's the reason that as a non-conglomerate owned brand, they were able to get so much momentum is it was the concept that actually like got people super excited. And it would be the same here. You need to get people excited about the concept. Ultimately, it was really the licensing that seemed to really catch Kevin's attention. I almost think it was like both an insult and a compliment how Kevin really locked on to this idea of like, look, you can license this patent to major manufacturing, I guess like meatpacking companies. And I am so on board with what you've done here. Not necessarily your product, but your process. It's amazing. I want 49% of your company. On one end, I was like, well, that clearly means he wants a big piece of the pie, right? Mm -hmm. Like he thinks he can make a lot of money on this. Otherwise, he wouldn't be wanting so much of it, I guess. But then at the same time, I was just like half the company. I know it's just like a percentage off, but 49%, Kevin, come on. It was a greedy offer. Yeah, 
They think this is an instance where he was overvaluing his network and connections. And that's why I'm glad that Damon came in at like 30%, which is much more feasible. I think, you know, it's a bit of a greedy offer, but he's only got 154000 in revenue. And so I think the Sharks a little bit were like, listen, we're going to have to get a bigger slice of the pie here if we're going to actually like invest in you. And you saw that even with Damon's follow-up offer. You know, yeah. the licensing deal to me does make a ton of sense because they've got distribution already. In theory, they've already got shelf space. They're going to be able to take this. You know, they're not going to have to build out the whole supply chain for everything. I think it's going to be a lot of capital for him to actually build and scale. And so the licensing concept is probably the way to go if you want a faster cash return. That is sometimes like my favorite part of Shark Tank is when other sharks kind of jump in and give their moderately solicited advice. Because Rob was like, you know what? Even if Kevin is in the network of meat processors, it's a very greedy offer. So yes, ultimately, between the other Sharks recommendations and the offer that Damon had on the table, essentially the deal was closed for $300,000 for 30% of the founder's company with the contingency of getting large meat processors to actually license on the patent. So Damon kind of came in with all of the advantages of Kevin's offer, but a little less equity to feel a little less greedy. Make no bones about it. He was lucky to get a deal. <laughs> so bit of a company update. So in 2017, mind you, this episode was 2013. So 2017, lifetime sales up to $16 million. Whoa. In October 2019, Bubba closed the restaurant, sad, after 13 years in business. You know, but the restaurant game, very difficult. And he still sells this product online. Uh, he did a $1 million pound order for Hardee's and Carl's Jr. restaurants Ooh. for a limited edition pork rib sandwich. Oh. A uh, lot of pork there. Is that a million pounds pre or post deboning? <laughs> Sorry, that's good to ask. As of November 2022, their annual revenue was up to $5 million. So Bubba is definitely selling its pork at an online store near you. So naturally, I was like, okay, so where can I get my Bubba Q's? <laughs> I will say, you can get them on QVC. Clearly, at one point, Lori oh. got in on the game. The rating, though, is 3.1. And, you know, let's take a look at why. Ew. Okay, so... uh. It's the texture. It's a texture thing. Seems to be more most of a texture thing. So if you're curious, definitely. There's look no it bones up. in it. <laughs> and you microwave it. It's probably yeah. rubbery if I had to imagine. One star, um. no bones. <laughs> All right. Keeping on the food theme for a moment. Next in the tank, we have a product that boasts itself as a healthier option for kids. This product, which is called Kids Love, comes to us from founder Ashi, and Ashi's asking for $200,000 for a 8% stake in her company. And that is a $2.5 million valuation. So the problem that Ashi's trying to solve is that it's hard to ensure that your kids are eating well these days. There's sugar absolutely everywhere, especially in juice. So say you give your kid a glass of juice a day, by the end of the year, you'd be essentially feeding them upwards of 20 pounds of cane sugar, which, you know, we get this wonderful demonstration where she proceeds <laughs> to dump 20 pounds of sugar on her kid Phoenix. But, you know, child labor aside, we see visually what that means. <laughs> and that gives us the introduction to this product, Kids Love, which is a vitamin-infused kids juice drink with no cane sugar and certified with 12 vegan vitamins, 
which comes to us also with the flavors of mango and coconut, flavors Mm. after my own heart. You know, we get a little bit of back and forth. There's at first a trade secret sweetener, which turns out to just be stevia. (laughs) So thinking about our founder, thinking about our product, initial thoughts. Could I just say, I love episodes where we get to learn more about our hosts here on the podcast. And for instance, today, I've learned a lot about Ariel just by her facial expressions reacting to the word stevia (laughs) and Bubba Q's boneless ribs. Her face lit up for Bubba Q's boneless ribs, but she stuck out her tongue at stevia. You should play poker with me sometime. I'm the absolute worst. My face shows everything. (laughs) Gets you away. So I thought she started off pretty staple of like talking about like the product, the value it can add, the problem. I really like that she did the demonstration. But honestly, when they started getting into the ingredients and the stevia part, I think that's where it started to like derail and kind of go downhill from there. What's wrong with stevia? Oh, oh, the taste. It tastes like chalk. You just don't like it. This is for kids. If I don't like it, Kids want to have something sweet and moms want it to be healthy. But when she specifically said that feedback point of, oh, the kids don't even notice the aftertaste. I don't believe that. Anyone who has been around kids knows that they will be the first to tell you if something tastes slightly off, even if it's the same thing you make for them. If you change one little ingredient, kids can pick up on that. So I wasn't entirely sold. And there's no like second chance. It's a one and done with kids. It's like they taste a teeny bit of it and then they're just like, nope, that's gross. Yeah, and I I hate that forever. I never eat it again. Mm -hmm. I don't like stevia. I did keto for a while where I'd use that as a replacement for a lot of sugar. So for like chia pudding and stuff and just, it has that very distinct aftertaste that I'm just not a fan of. I think Mark and Barbara were a hundred percent on your side because they zoomed into their faces when they were sipping the samples and they both were like, "Mm." so I feel like stevia (laughs) is one of those that divides people, but you're either fine with it or you're like, absolutely not. I can taste it immediately. Get it out of my food. Jory, that brings up a good point because like she does talk about this proprietary sweetener that includes the stevia. But I was also curious too, is the extra ingredients that she's adding actually natural and organic or is it just like more artificial stuff? There's a lot we don't know about the product, but I think one thing that we do know is that there is a large market for more healthy kids' food and drink. I think most parents aspire to feed their kids healthy things. I think most parents think, how do I avoid getting my kid totally hooked on sweets and sugar? And so I think like she's on to something here, assuming that it tastes good. And then it just becomes a question of whether you would invest in this business or not. It didn't unravel for me at the Stevia. It unraveled for me when I found out that she'd spent a million dollars developing the product and needed money just to even begin to distribute it. Yes. Let's talk about that because I started doing the math behind this. and I'm like, the math's not mathing up. So one year in stores, she had about a 200K delta. She raised a million dollars with her friends and family and now just has 50K left. So where did that 1 million go? 10% of it went towards licensing for the 150K and 5% went towards manufacturing. Where's the remaining 80 to 75%? I just feel, and this is a gut feeling, but I feel like someone may have used it to cushion a little bit of all the extra responsibilities that they were adding on instead of hiring people to do those jobs. I don't know. My hunch is that maybe she was paying herself a little too nicely and just didn't want to admit that. And I think that's why the sharks honestly pulled back and they could recognize that, but didn't want to say it. And then the only other kind of like financial ingredient, if you will, that we got is she was, oh, you know, about 150 to maybe 200. There was some vagueness with her actual financial figures, but whatever. (laughs) It went to like the formulator to develop the initial flavors. And then there seems to be a focus on these ingredients being vegan. 
So sourcing these vegan vitamins also had an unknown financial strain on the company. Mm -hmm. Don't know how difficult it is to source that type of thing because even Kevin mentioned that sometimes these vitamins aren't soluble. So like having them in like a chemically okay form to also go in juice, I think that was something. But we didn't really get that number at all or like what kind of financial strain or research and development went into using those things to make it the quote unquote healthy kids drink. Ariel, is your (laughs) assertion that she took a large chunk of the million dollars for herself? My assertion is that because she mentions how she's the one doing the selling and the traveling and the relationships and going door to door and doing the marketing when asked questions about where did the rest of the money go? And maybe it was the editing. They like to edit it to make it seem like the most like dramatic thing ever. But the way that it was edited to me gave me that vibe to make that assumption. And intentional or not, you're saying that she like boss babed her way to the bank. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you got a million dollars from family and friends and you only have 55K in sales. Yeah. And we didn't discuss what your margins are. Where can you bring costs down? Is that like the main inhibitor or problem to your business? And I don't think she was necessarily coming in asking for that type of partner and advice. And instead, it's just like, here are all the things that I'm doing. I'm going to continue doing this. Please just give me money, which, yeah, yeah, (laughs) my personal thoughts. This is actually the thing is, regardless of whether or not there is uh, financial malfeasance in the air. Great word. (laughs) I'm trying to put some big words. Ariel brought the patent heat on the first one and brought details on (laughs) patents. I'm trying to bring some words that up my credibility here on the show. Words like assertion and malfeasance. But whether or not there was financial malfeasance, Ariel, yes. I think that like the fundamental thing here is any entrepreneur or startup founder, I think you always want to look for a couple of characteristics. Hmm. One is you want to see that they are absolutely passionate about finding product market fit. Another is you do want somebody who manages their money effectively, especially if you're going to invest in them. You want to see somebody that can run a business long-term and responsibly and be a good fiduciary and all that. Both of those things are off here. Like, I'm just super terrified that she's going to actually start getting distribution on this thing that she's spent a million dollars making and kids just aren't going to like it. And she's not going to have the flexibility or the room to actually go back and pivot and change course. She's got a great brand name. She seems super passionate. Mm -hmm. She's like really trying to make something great for kids' health. Like, I want her to succeed. And I'm worried that she's put herself in a corner here. Yeah, I took it like this is an entrepreneur that has really good intent on what Mm -hmm. she wants to do with the business. Like I think the mission actually started with like wanting to have a healthy product for kids and then had a lot of very wealthy friends that gave her some approximation of what a successful business even was. She talks about how part of the money went to trademarking a parent company for what is essentially also a two-product business. So she has like this parent company structure and then kids love. And like she had to make sure she got IP and trademark on both of those things. Maybe she got so lost in the theoretical that like the tangible tactical part of the business got lost. And like maybe that would have been okay ideating a business, but like in execution, that's where it falls apart. Right. I just feel like there's nothing wrong saying I need help. I don't know what I'm doing, Mm -hmm. but it does Mm -hmm. sound like she just needed like a partner, like two steps beforehand of like, Hey, you don't need a patent just yet. Like maybe you need to focus more on like your marketing and your branding. I think she could have gotten a shark investment if she was just very honest about where she was at instead of getting really defensive. What she could have done is she could have come in, Ariel, to your point and said, I have spent $1 million dollars clearing the way for this to be one of the biggest products Mm -hmm. in kids' food and health in the last century. And I now need a shark to help me. 
And I know that it's going to seem like an unattractive investment because I've spent a million dollars and I've done all this stuff, but here's why I'm going to make that deal sweet and why I'm going to make this an incredible opportunity for you. And instead, like these details trickled out over the course of the pitch. And it just like, as that happens, it's just like you lose trust. And instead she should have come in and been like, I need help for this next phase. Mm-hmm. I've probably made some mistakes, but regardless, this is what I've done. I've spent a million dollars. We are now ready to go and we are ready to scale this and I need some help. I'll give you a big chunk of my company. Let's go. Yeah, I agree with John's way that he summed it up really nicely. I think, you know, be confident in your mistakes and be Mm -hmm. forthcoming and upright with that. Building the trust with the investors is another part of the pitch that we don't really talk about, but you also are selling in like, this is why you need to believe in me and this is why you should trust me with your money. Add it to the list of things for a founder. That's a great ad, Ariel, which is like, number one, you want somebody who's obsessed about product market fit. Number two, you want someone who can be scrappy financially. Mm -hmm. And number three, you want someone that you personally trust. You know, that pitch, it just was sad because I watched the trust erode over the course of the pitch. And as it eroded too far down, I was like, oh, she can't recover from this. Ultimately, the sharks were not picking up what she was selling. So actually, this is one of the cases where no deals were made. So I actually have to ask, do you think this is still a product? (sighs) This one's tough because I feel like she would have just gone back to her family and friends to re-pivot the product. I know. I have the wrong friends. Like, I need (laughs) some business plans. Like, let's go, I need to make friends with more venture capitalists (laughs) and investors. When was this pitch? So this pitch was back in 2020. March. Uh-oh. March 13th. Oh, the week before. The day that COVID struck. That's the day I moved home. I didn't go to a grocery store for three years. That's definitely out of business. <laughs> so as of 2023, this company was boasting, you know, it's in over 2000 stores nationwide. And at first I was like, ah, oh, this is awesome. It still exists. It's got a four-star rating across these platforms. It's doing good. It even had just announced that it had this new berry berry flavor. Like I know mm. that was something in the pitch where they were like, we want to develop more flavors and continue to level in. And maybe it's more of my like conspiracy theorist mind, but that's actually where too, this started to fall apart. Because interestingly enough, this product is sold out everywhere. Like everywhere online that remotely references this product, you can't find it. It's not available. Which on one side, you could be like, oh, that's super successful. But it seems like it's been sold out for a while. So I did some more digging. And every single social media channel that this company has had has been dark for six months. Like, so we're talking like LinkedIn, Instagram, everything. Apparently the company is still boasting like a $5 million annual revenue, which is great, which is great. But there's something going on here with kids love. And I, I can't put my finger on it, but like- Malfeasance. Yeah, malfeasance. <laughs> that's what it is. That's the main takeaway. So it's like still a company, but it seems like it's either very popular or there's a supply chain issue. It's very difficult to get a hold of your kids love drink at a target near you. So I don't know what to tell you. It, it is and it isn't. Create Like the Greats, hosted by Ross Simmons, is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. Each episode hosts an in-depth analysis of some of the greatest creations and creators of all time, along with deep dive conversations on the creative process that went into building companies and brands. If you like learning about history or learning about the creative process, you'll like this podcast. Listen to Create Like the Greats wherever you get your podcasts. All right. Well, last in the tank, we have Hopscotch. And Hopscotch comes to us from founder Samantha, who is asking for $400,000 for 4% stake in her company, which is a $10 million valuation, a little bit up there. But the product 
is trying to solve for the problem that, you know, today's a digital economy and those lemonade stands, a thing of the past. So what's a young entrepreneur supposed to do? Well, enter Hopscotch, where young entrepreneurs can build and run their first businesses by creating games, like video games, using a kid-friendly program language that helps kids learn game design and graphics all online and develop those lifelong skills. I am deeply in love with the idea of products that help kids figure out financial literacy. I think it's so important. I think like investing, marketing, selling things. I think it's so cool that kids now have access to this whole slew of products and offerings that actually help them figure out stuff that it was like really hard to kind of like figure out when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. I also love the idea of doing it in the context of building something, of actually coding, of actually doing it online. Like it just feels like an incredible product to prepare kids for the future. And uh, so I, I was immediately taken by the idea and the concept of Hopscotch. What about you, Ariel? What do you think about Hopscotch? I think it's, you know, great program for like teaching kids. It's like essentially the Zangar, the MySpace, like how we would code out our little layouts and stuff. It's a similar concept, except a little more kid friendly. Yeah. You know, I know how to do the falling star script in HTML. (laughs) My only question around this is like, as we think about kids games and stuff, there are things like COPA, which is the children's online privacy protection rule, which has like certain rules Mm. in place for what you can market and sell to kids under the age of 13. She mentioned that the goal was for kids to like sell like in-game currency or their games like across games. I'm just very curious on how that does have an impact from like a legal perspective that I wish they like dived into a little bit more since it is more of a newer privacy law. I totally understood like the value proposition of this product. What got me a little confused, and I'm hoping both of you can help me unpack this, is the business model of this app. So the app itself launched back in 2012. Initially, it was freemium, but then it was like a subscription model. Mm -hmm. And now it only has 6,000 subscribers, but that's okay because it has like 200,000 monthly users. I was just really confused about like how this business operates. So can you help me unpack that? It seems like she had a business model challenge. She built an incredible product. Parents liked it. Kids liked it. She got 400,000 users or something. And then she realized that she couldn't make any money Mm -hmm. and she was running out of money. And so she had to make some choices about like what her business model should be. And the choice that she made at the time was to turn it into a subscription business and basically to cut off free access to people. And based on that, she ended up with 5,000 paid subscribers and she halved her monthly active users or whatever from 400,000 down to 200,000, which is super painful. And it seems like she was coming to the Sharks basically saying, I need more money and I'm on the cusp of kind of reinventing my business model again because this pivot to subscription is not working. I think if you look at the most successful games for kids that have monetized. I mean, Roblox is probably Mm -hmm. the like best example. They do a combination of things. They're exceptional at in-app purchases, right? They do have some subscription options. Like you can definitely buy premium Roblox subscription. And like, I bet some people would buy premium hopscotch subscriptions too. The in-game purchases, premium membership subscriptions, those things together could probably work to maybe more effectively monetize the freemium base. So if you're going to change up your business model after being in business for several years, what should you consider before doing that? The idea of any freemium business model is that you're going to be able to monetize a certain percentage of the people that you get using your platform. Every user you acquire is expensive. And so like you have to have the highest monetization rate possible. And so for her, like I think her number one consideration should have been how do I keep as many of these people active as possible? She probably should have thought a little bit more about monetization at the start too, so that it was just kind of built into it. 
And honestly, like despite the business model changes, she's still making $35,000 a month. That seems to be why she's coming to the Shark Tank, right? Because it's like now it's an issue of like, they're not making money, but they're not losing money. And they want to scale to a point where they are actively like making money and not just like breaking even. But it was interesting because it seems like the ideal shark was the shark that had heard of this before. Mark was such a big fan because he had used it with his kids before. It was unclear to me if she knew that he was a user of the product or not. Mm. She was like, oh, you have used it? Like, so either that was like was brilliantly unclear. acted mm-hmm. or like she... She didn't know. Yeah. It was unclear. Again, this was a situation where I feel like the founder came in knowing how much she didn't want to give away. So we saw uh, a bit of back and forth with her and Mark. A deal was made for $550,000 for 11% with Mark. Ultimately, I felt like Mark was able to cut her some slack because he's like, you know what? I really believe in this product. You're doing amazing things and I can help you scale and be successful in the way that you want to. I think she was in a really tough spot. I hope for her that getting Mark as a partner was the partner she needed. I'm glad she got the deal with him. I hope in the end it got her what she needed beyond just capital, because I think she actually probably needed some strategic partnership as well beyond just money. The Sharks invest in products that are cash flow businesses, and Mm -hmm. almost no tech companies are cash flow businesses like that. Most of them have to invest way ahead of revenue for longer payback on future revenue streams. And that's why they call it venture capital. Because it's like a venture and the hit rate on it is like one out of 10 actually ever hit. So it's never great when a tech company comes to Shark Tank for an investment. You're right. Her back was kind of against the wall. We're all cheering for her. Like, I mean, who doesn't want a company like this to succeed? Absolutely. What ended up happening, Jory? Yeah. Company update. So it's very much still a business. Currently, they have over 26 million downloads. 38 million games have been made by kids lifetime with this app, which is just astronomical when you think about it, but their annual revenue is up to $5 million a year, which calculating it moderately out, like is definitely more revenue than they came in with. So there has been some success. And yes, I did look it up for reviews because all these sharks were playing these games and they were like, it's super fun. And like, yes, I had to see like, is this something I want to look at? Because I'm also a baby coder, but not literally baby, but more coder. And it's got a 4.5 on the app store. Kids love it. So A plus. We've got one golden bite, one bite to give. And we've got three very different products. We've got meat, juice, and a fun coding app. Who wins today's episode? This one's tough for me. I'm going code. Juice, meat, or bits? I'm doing bits. (laughs) Or bites. Bites. Because it's like bites. Yes. (laughs) I know. I'm doing bites. Another B-Y-T-E, guys. Yeah. (laughs) I think the hopscotch business adds good to the world. It's incredible. I really hope that she found her way through the business model challenges because there's nothing worse than like actually being successful, getting half million kids actually like Mm -hmm. on your platform and then being like, I can't monetize this. So I hope she found her path to really great monetization and that she personally as an entrepreneur has seen success because of that. I will go with Hopscotch as well. I do feel like for the reasons that John mentioned, she deserves to get the bite. I feel like she was very much like passionate about what she was doing. She's a great investment entrepreneur-wise. Hopscotch it is. What about you, Jory? I'm going to say Bubba Q's because I thought it inspired interesting marketing conversation around mystery meat, which is not something we talk about all that much. So (laughs) Bubba Q's just in terms of like 
ingenuity of removing bones, where are the bones? And I really just like the founder. You know, anytime we get a good story about someone that's really passionate about what they're doing, like I was totally bought into the fact that he loved barbecue and like you do not have a barbecue restaurant. Yeah. Yeah. She was like the driving force for why he wasn't quitting this difficult industry. So Bubba won me over. So I will say Bubba Q's. Make no bones about it. Jory made her choice. Today's episode was written and produced by the wonderful Matthew Brown. Additional support for the show comes from Melanie Romero and Robert Hartwig. And for all of you Spotify users out there, let me tell you about a special new feature. Okay, are you on your phone? Pop that out of your pocket, fire up today's episode screen, and take a look. You'll see a section called Q&A with just an adorable little reply button right below it. Tap that button and write to us directly. Yeah, direct feed from your fingertips to our inbox. What a feature, what a technology. Each episode has a new question, so make sure you stay in touch. All right, that does it for me. See you next week for another bite.